Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week. The huge amount of money that's flowing out of the U.S. Treasury leaves a lot of oversight work to be done for the Federal Inspector General community. In the case of the Defense Department, the CARES Act delivered more than $10 billion for the COVID-19 response, and billions more could still be on the way in follow-on appropriations. It's obviously a bit too early to tell how effectively DOD is spending that money, but the Pentagon's Inspector General has already announced several projects to track the spending. In the meantime, the OIG is also drawing on history to remind DOD acquisition officials about best practices for emergency appropriations. A new special report draws on three dozen past audits that looked at various types of emergencies and how the contracting community responded. There are some common themes, even though none of them are quite like the current emergency. To talk about some of those, we're joined by Teresa Hull. She's the Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Acquisition, Contracting, and Sustainment at the DOD OIG. And Teresa, let's start by talking a little bit about why exactly the OIG felt it was important to put this product together in the first place. I mean, reading between the lines, it seems like you you maybe saw some potential problems on the horizon here if, if contracting folks weren't careful. Our intent was to be proactive. We wanted to make the contracting personnel aware of best practices, as well as lessons learned related to disaster response and relief, with the intent, of course, of reducing fraud, waste, and abuse for COVID-19 and future emergency responses. Uh, And we've done significant work in the disaster relief and response arena. So we were able to pull, pull forward some common themes that recurred in our oversight work. Those include communication and coordination, documentation, consistency in contracting processes and staffing and training. And, you know, I'd be remiss um, not to acknowledge the fact that we're pretty early in our oversight response. So DOD personnel um, has an opportunity to to improve processes and implement procedures to minimize the re- and reduce the chances of negative events occurring. Um, the government, of course, has learned in past emergency responses that it's easier to make sure expenditures are legitimate at the forefront before the money leaves the government than it is to get back misused funds. So the intent of our product was really to be as proactive as we can, put out information there for the contracting community to use as they move forward in this dynamic and ever-changing COVID-19 response environment. And trying to mine for lessons learned seemed like seems like it might have been a little bit of a challenge here because the department's never really faced something exactly like this. But 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 to what extent do previous emergencies that the department has had to deal with map on potentially to to this situation? Well, there are definitely some risks that are inherent um, in conducting this type of contracting during this emergency situation. One of the areas that we see is with documentation. Uh, Documentation, you know, we understand that it, documentation should not hold up response efforts, but the government needs to be able to establish clear requirements, develop accurate cost estimates, and make sure that the receipt of goods and services are what we, what we wanted. Um, there's an increased risk that the contractor could provide different services than expected um, or modifications could later be required, which would increase costs. If the if the documentation isn't isn't put together, um, the government also later on would not have the documentation to reconcile billing. So documentation is critical. Um, also, because of the rapid pace that the support is being provided, the government may not have uh, adequately trained personnel in place to do everything required. 
At times, what we've seen is personnel that may not normally work in contracting are pulled to supplement the response, um, and therefore that those personnel may not be as familiar with pre-award or even post-award contracting functions. We acknowledge that DOD officials are under increased pressure to provide goods and services, in, in, and it is a very fast-paced, ever-changing environment right now with this pandemic. Um, but what contracting officers are experiencing right now are similar to pressures that were present during past disaster response and relief efforts. So again, our intent here was to highlight best practices and lessons learned that really span a significant uh, portion of time. Um, our reports go back, for, back, go back to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, to the more recent hurricanes of last year with Florence and Irma. And we highlighted again the, the four areas that the DOD contracting community should, community should be aware of, um, communication and coordination, documentation, consistency in the contracting pra pra uh, process, and staffing and training. And if DOD officials consider these areas um, and think about ways to mitigate them, um, they are going to potentially minimize the opportunities for fraud, waste, and abuse. And they, we all know that they have to over award and oversee a large number of contracts, and you know we're just at the beginning of that. So um, we, our hope was that this uh, report would give them a tool um, to properly execute the funds and um, provide them some lessons learned from the past. And one of the things you point out in this guide is that there are at least some parts of DOD who, who really set the department up for success by doing some advanced contracting, um, getting vehicles in place that could be leveraged kind of on a dime when needed. Can you describe some of that work and why it's helpful? Sure. The Army Corps of Engineers has global contingency construction contracts in place, and those contracts were used to build some of what you've seen, I'm sure, are the alternative care sites that have been put up for the coronavirus response. Um, these types of contracts could also be used to provide various operation centers, staging areas, um, and other, other similar, um, similar uh, staging sites that the federal government would need for command and control during the response. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers also has a contract in place to provide temporary power. Um, that, that contract is routinely used to provide power to hospitals when it cannot be generated using normal methods um, because it had been potentially interrupted because of a natural disaster. Um, another government or DOD agency, I should say, um, that, that has been proactive um, is the Defense Logistics Agency. They have a number of contracts in place to obtain medical supplies and personal protective equipment for normal DOD operations. Uh, federal agencies have used these contracts during the response to obtain this equipment. And as DOD begins to reopen, components that don't that ha had no previous need for this equipment are now dependent on the supplies to resume their operations. So if there's existing capacity on these contracts, it would lessen the need to obtain these supplies through new awards. Have you been able to draw any conclusions based on past work at, at how well DOD has done at communicating the availability of, of vehicles like this throughout the department and, and throughout the government? Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're pretty early on in our um, COVID-19 oversight response, so it's difficult to assess how well the department is communicating the availability of these contracts now. Um, however, the defense pricing and contracting um, they have a defense contingency contracting handbook 
They also have a Defense Contingency Contracting Contracting Officers Representative Handbook Guide, and there are other resources that they have available um, to their contracting staff. So while I can't um, weigh in necessarily on how well it's being communicated, there are certainly resources out there and groups that have are, are put in place to coordinate response efforts. One of the other issues you talk about is um, the, the use of undefinitized contract actions, which I think we've probably seen a lot of in, in the current circumstance. Um, can you talk a bit about when those are appropriate, when, when the department might need to leverage them, and, and some of the steps that, that officials can take to make sure that things don't go sideways when they're using those UCAs? So undefinitized contract actions are contract or for use when um, contract terms, specifications, or price are not agreed upon before performance has begun under the action. Oftentimes, you'll hear them referred to as letter contracts. And undefinitized contract actions are inappropriate to use when prices can be quickly negotiated and established. And the reason for that is that they are inherently risky contracting vehicles for the government for for a couple of reasons. Um, When undefinitized contract actions are put in place, the government could be in a sole source negotiation stance with a contractor. That could lead to higher prices for the government. And when the government has less negotiating power in a sole source environment, um, those goods and services are definitely going to come at a higher price tag. Um, Also, this is especially true when the goods and services have already been delivered or the work has been completed. Also, on undefinitized contract actions, the government reimburses all allowable costs to the contractor until the government and the contractor can come to an agreement on the terms, pricing, and profit for the contract, and that occurs at the actual contract definitization. Uh, The longer it takes the government and the contractor to come to that agreement, the more cost risk the government has to absorb for that particular contract. And what's unique in this environment, um, the government typically will reimburse the contractor uh, for allowable costs up to 50% of the contract's not to exceed amount prior to coming to an agreement on the terms pricing and profit. Um, But in this current environment, um, the limitations were waived for undefinitized contract actions that support COVID-19 national emergency. So while the the waiver is necessary for the response, the the waiver of the threshold further removes the incentive for contractors to control their costs, and it's one of the main reasons that UCAs are needed to be definitized as quickly as possible. You know, while UCAs can save contracting officers time on the front end, um, they spend a lot more time and effort coming to an agreement on price later. Um, What we've seen in our work surrounding undefinitized contract actions is that normal You know, the normal definitive contracts are awarded with negotiations already in place and the price is determined. But for these undefinitized contract actions, um, contracting officers are having to issue the contract and then continuously and constantly monitor the contract and work with that contractor to provide the needed information to ultimately negotiate and and definitize the contract. Um, And that can take months, sometimes even years, depending on the period of performance of the undefinitized contract action. Now, conversely, there are are certainly times where it's appropriate to use an undefinitized contract action. Um, Undefinitized contract actions allow contracting officers to get work started. They get, they allow them to order supplies and oftentimes they're delivered faster than in normal operating conditions, which is critical in any disaster situation. 
Um, this, this can lead to lives saved, you know, getting towns on their way to recovery within days or weeks rather than months. And this often outweighs the cons because of the impact to life and safety. Um, you asked about, you know, post-award, like what, what could be done um, on the end. And uh, the, the undefinitized contract action does not result in any less requirements to administer the contract. Um, the contracting officer must still negotiate a fair and reasonable price for the support and should do so as soon as possible. Um, as, as, as I discussed, until definitization of the contract, the government will bear the risk and DOD regulations require um, that the contractor's profit be reduced to reflect that status. Um, the contractor will be incentivized to negotiate the price promptly because then they can negotiate a higher profit on the work performed after the price is definitized. That, that additional back-end work post-award that you mentioned on, on undefinitized contract actions, I, I think that gets to your staffing point that you also, that you also make in this guide. Because I, I, I think one thing we know also is that there's been you know, a huge amount of contracting volume increase during the current circumstances. So, so do we know, based on previous emergency situations, whether the department or other parts of the government have needed to even temporarily boost their contracting or contract administration workforces to handle that volume that, that as you said, can drag out for years? So to date, um, we've seen that the Department of, of Defense has about 250 yukas um, that includes, yuka-related actions, that includes awards, mods, um, on 129 contracts, and their obligations are upwards of $826 million. Um, and that's only for yukas issued by, again, the Department of Defense. So with the um, disaster situation or pandemic response environment, um, it's, it's natural to see the uptick in the yukas. But to your point, yes, that, that requires potentially more staffing. Um, and staffing was one of the areas that we highlighted in our in our special report as something that um, must be must be there. It is essential to have proper staffing and training when you're um, awarding and administering these types of contracts. Um, while we recognize the availability of staff and funding constraints may affect staffing levels and training, um, it's definitely something that the DoD uh, contracting community needs to be aware of and be prepared for. As you've been saying, it's still way too early in the current emergency to assess how well DOD is dealing with all the issues we've been talking about. But but the OIG does have a pretty robust oversight plan for COVID specifically. So maybe it'd be useful if you could talk us through some of the projects that you've started or are planning to start soon specific to COVID. So within the DOD OIG, we have um, several components doing work related to COVID response. Um, within the audit component alone, we have 13 ongoing audits. Um, we have two that will be announced fairly soon, and we have several more under development. Um, our evaluations component also has several jobs um, ongoing and will be will be announcing as well in the future. And these jobs really cover the, the whole gamut um, as it relates to COVID response to include healthcare, uh, issues related to the supply chain, um, the use of civil authorities, uh, cybersecurity, we have a joint audit and evaluation assessing military treatment facilities and their response and challenges that they have encountered. So the um, our our agency has done, in my opinion, a phenomenal job of responding at at the forefront, being proactive, acknowledging where fraud, waste, and abuse could occur, and ensuring that we have the right projects to respond to that. 
And would it be fair to anticipate that that some additional projects could come along as actual reports of waste, fraud, and abuse come into the hotline? It's certainly possible. Um, and under the CARES Act, we, um, we received additional funding to perform such oversight work. Um, I'd be remiss not to mention our Defense Criminal Investigative Service. They, too, have done a lot with uh, COVID-19 response. In fact, they have a um, fraudulent activity poster on, their web- on our website that talks to some of the COVID-19 fraudulent um, risk areas, among other resources as well. That's Teresa Hull, the Assistant Inspector General for Audit Acquisition, Contracting, and Sustainment at the DOD Inspector General's Office. We'll post a link to the special report on COVID contracting we've been discussing at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Short break, and when we come back, we will take a look at DOD's plan to right-size its medical facilities. A new report suggests the department made those downsizing decisions without nearly enough data. That's next on Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. Back on Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbia. The Defense Department is moving ahead with plans to close or restructure almost 50 of its military treatment facilities. That's despite a new report by the Government Accountability Office that found DOD targeted those facilities for right-sizing without gathering enough data on whether the patients they serve can be absorbed into the civilian health care system. Brenda Farrell is Director for Defense Capabilities and Management at GAO. She talked about the findings with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. This is a complex issue, and DOD has been continuously challenged about how do they balance the military readiness mission with the mission to deliver high-quality medical care to the beneficiaries. And the massive reform efforts for the military health system actually began over a decade ago. This is one of several reforms that's underway. When the reforms began, this last time, the focus was on cost efficiencies. But in the past few years, the focus has shifted to the priority of uh, military medical readiness. So Congress mandated, knowing how complex and how much care should be taken with this restructuring, Congress mandated DOD to provide the plan that you mentioned, and then for DOD to provide it to us, we would review it before any action was taken by DOD or Congress, and then they would move forward. It affects millions of people. It affects the mission. It has an outreach that's hard really to to understand and and grasp. Yeah. So is part of this then taking a portion of care that may not be related to readiness, routine care, and trying to shift it to providers outside of the military system itself? Exactly. That's part of it. The mandate to DOD established some statutory elements, and we found that DOD did use and prioritize those statutory elements. The first being to determine the support each MTF provides to service members' medical readiness and the readiness of the medical providers, then to determine the adequacy of the civilian healthcare facilities and providers to support the healthcare needs of service members and other beneficiaries through purchase care, purchase care being outside of the MTS. And then the last criterion that Congress wanted to see was the cost effectiveness of direct care services at the MTF. 
relative to purchase care in the area. The bottom line, it may help the listeners to understand the bottom line of the plan was that DOD reviewed 77 MTS in the United States. The plan included decreasing capabilities at 43, shifting that care out to purchase care, and then closing five of uh, those MTS. So it's quite complex, as we've said. And I guess my overall sense in looking and skimming at this report is that DOD made those decisions with not enough of the proper information it should have had going into the variables. Yes, they did a very thorough job documenting their methodology that guided the approach and incorporating the cross-cutting statutory elements. But we found that often they used incomplete or inaccurate information, sometimes both, or there were gaps. Especially of concern is the first criterion on military medical readiness, because as a first step, this being the highest priority, DOD decided on a strategy that they believe would prioritize each MTS support to service members' medical readiness and the readiness of the medical providers. DOD determined that MTS should maintain certain minimum capabilities for service members, including primary care, and on a case-by-case basis, some specialties such as behavioral health, physical therapy. Sometimes if there's a training component on an installation, it might be urgent or emergency care. And then DOD also evaluated each MTS contribution toward clinical readiness of the providers. They looked at workload or graduate medical uh, education. But we found that DOD conducted limited MTS readiness support for military primary care and non-physician medical providers. And who am I talking about? Their focus was more on casualty combat providers, the physicians, rather than the other physicians needed for uh, primary care or nurses, enlisted medical and uh, surgical specialties. So they only looked at a small portion of the medical workforce that is needed for all uh, military medical readiness. And you're probably going to ask, well, why did they do that? They, they did that because they didn't have metrics for all the categories. They had the metrics for the combat casualty care providers, but they didn't have the metrics for those other categories. They did look at productivity goals for primary physicians, but productivity goals aren't the same as metrics because they don't identify the type of service needed at those MTFs. Sure. So for their... For the highest priority, there's still a huge gap in terms of the uh, medical workforce that would be needed to help ensure the military medical readiness of the service members and the providers. We're speaking with Brenda Farrell, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Now, you said that GAO had to pass muster on the plans before they proceeded. Did I hear that correctly? And so what is the status of the reorganization and the restructuring at this point? Well, we offered our findings and recommendations to Congress. Now it's up to Congress if they want to take some kind of action for DOD. And as you know, the Senate Armed Services Committee is getting ready to go to mark, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what they may reflect in their version of the NDAA. They could do nothing. They could take a wait-and-see attitude. We don't know. DOD has put a pause on this particular reform, along with some of their other reforms, because of what's been going on with COVID-19. 
but the pause ends at the end of June. So we'll have to see if they continue to put a pause or if they move forward with the restructuring or if Congress takes some action, perhaps based on GAO's findings and recommendations. Yeah, so to summarize the findings and recommendations, basically they need to do more research and they need to refine their information on which they're basing decisions about the MTFs. And do they generally concur with what you have recommended? Yes, they did. And we had other recommendations that dealt with the adequacy of nearby health care, where the second criterion was to determine if the MDS for restructuring had adequate civilian health care facilities and providers in proximity. And we actually had three areas where we found some incomplete and inaccurate information, one dealing with the quality of civilian providers with missing information. The second was the number of available civilian providers was questionable. We thought it might be understated. And then the third one dealt with the standardized time that DOD set for a patient to drive to their provider. There were six. DOD concurred with two of those pretty uh, well. The others, they partially concurred. So those are the ones we want to watch very carefully because we believe that all of the recommendations need to be fully implemented. It strikes me that what they're doing is somewhat, not totally, but somewhat analogous to what the VA has been trying to do in increasing the CHOICE program. Is there anything that DOD can learn from what VA has gone through, or maybe vice versa? We didn't compare the restructuring to VA. We did, when we would find missing information, we would see if that information was even available. So we we don't want to recommend, for example, that they assess the quality of civilian providers if that information's not there. But there is information on quality of providers. The, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, along with some private insurers, developed uh, metrics for quality of specialty care. And that's something that is available. We cite it in the report. And there are other sources as well. So we believe that there's for each of the findings that we raise about problems, we do have examples of where that information might exist or how it could be improved without taking, you know, another 10 years. That's Brenda Farrell, Director for Defense Capabilities and Management at GAO, talking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post a link to GAO's findings on DOD's medical facility downsizing plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Another short break, and when we return, a look at the Air Force's IT landscape from the retiring leader who's led that service's IT enterprise for the past two and a half years. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbiv. Back on Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The last couple of years have been some significant ones for enterprise IT in the Air Force. The service has started down the path to transition its IT networks over to an industry-managed service delivery model, moved most of its users to a brand new email platform, and started a major push to reskill its IT workforce. Most of those efforts happened on the watch of Bill Marion, who retired from government service as the Air Force's deputy CIO in May. Federal News Network's Jason Miller talked with Marion during his final days in office to get his perspective on some of those recent changes and what the next CIO needs to be thinking about. I think first and foremost, uh, in, in this position, the, you know, the last two years has been about building an integrated IT digital modernization roadmap. And so 
First and foremost, as a CIO, the alignment of funding, the alignment of governance, the alignment of oversight, uh, we've worked extremely hard to, to get that alignment. And I, I really, I truly think we're there. And as I, the other article noted the other day, um, we've got the secretary and the chief financially supporting that investment strategy because they see it aligned to warfighting and, and capabilities. So continuing to prog progress on that one, continuing to, along that roadmap line, all of the, the enterprise IT as a service and related uh, IT modernization, digital modernization efforts are, are very front and, and center. We have to keep accelerating those, keep driving them. You know, I think 5G, everybody knows the investments there, but I think we're gonna accelerate that even more. You see unified collaborations, COVID is actually gonna, gonna drive that one, accelerate even more. And then the journey we're on right now with CDO is with data as a strategic asset. So accelerating ITAS is a key one. And then as I mentioned a little bit before, digital talent management, this how we're equipping an entire DOD force for advanced analytic skills, data skills, uh, even programmatic skill, programming skills uh, is really gonna be key. Uh, and then the last but not least was the discussion we had on risk management. Um, we have to continue to transform risk management uh, programs like the bug bounty programs, continuous assessments, uh, looking at dashboarding of risk and being able to execute at speed. Uh, that, that's the world we live in. We have to be able to adjust based upon that risk model every day. So compliance-based risk is, is just not going to work. We've actually got to get into this truly active continuous monitoring format. So that's kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, there's some CIO governance and, and road mapping. There's the IT investments, the talent management, and the cyber risk. Um, very, very aligned to the goals that, that I published over the last two years, but I think the details underneath the hood is, is where really money is to be made, if you will. Let's unpack a couple of those real quick and just so uh, we can put a little more final point. Uh, I want to go back to the point you made earlier about the digital talent management, something maybe you wish you would have done earlier we were gotten started earlier, but you're glad it's, it's on its way now. One of the things that Air Force has always been, I think, ahead of other agencies and military services is, for instance, around cyber. You guys, I think, had the first cyber training. You guys really looked at how to ensure that airmen, as they came in, whether or not they were in the IT or cyber world, understood at least some of the basics around cyber. That's part of driving this digital talent management. How are you guys doing it today, and where do you see it going, you know, three, five, seven years from now? Uh, I wish we had the answer. There, there are a couple things we're focused on. One is uh, we've talked publicly about digital university, which is how do you democratize the training? So that's kind of a foundational step uh, to making sure the tools are there uh, for every airman to be able to go in. Much like my son learns off of YouTube every day, it needs to be that prevalent and that democratized. We are looking at some things like around language initiatives to, if you could take and, and, and see if people are no Python or R, how do you incentivize uh, further development that based upon real life skills? And so there's a, a financial and an occupational tie that we're trying to make. And then the, the, the larger piece of it is just our workforce structure. How do we force develop somebody through that that isn't a native? So I, I do think we've done a really good job developing cyber airmen that are more in those occupational series. But I think the, what I'm really trying to itch at at the digital talent management is, you know, I, I use the term every airman, a digital airman. And so the, the young folks aren't the issue, right? It's the, the folks <laughs> up in my age group that don't necessarily have all those skills. So how do we make every airman a digital airman through the use of tools, incentives, workforce opportunities to continue to develop and, and modernize in that space? 
I had a conversation a couple of months back with someone from the National Security Agency, maybe even U.S. Cyber Command, and they talked about some of the incentives they're using to bring in people and get them trained. So if you train at this level, you get this much money. If you train at that level, you get this much of a bump. Is that very similar to what you're starting to look at? Or is they're special because they're cyber and you're looking at digital, you may not have that much flexibility or at least the ability to offer too much financial We've got the flexibilities. Congress has been outstanding with giving us authorities for expedited hire and direct hire and ability to incentivize, but uh, we haven't gotten there yet with actually putting in a whole of DOD or federal the dollars behind that. That's where I was going to, with respect to that's an area that we often talk about infrastructure, stimulus, fixing bridges, roads, those kind of things. We don't do a really good job just investing in teachers, right? Because it's it's a very large bill, but how are we ever going to progress if we don't invest in teachers in the in the regular academic world? The same kind of thing goes through in the DOD is how do we make those big investments that, that really are game-changing in our workforce? I think we've done that in the seams. I think there are communities that have done it. Uh, what I'm talking about is kind of the whole of government to really accelerate. I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I'm going to shift over to another big topic, which is the Enterprise IT as a Service. I was um, on a recent webinar where uh, one of your folks talked about the progress you guys are making. You and I had a conversation several months ago, and I learned quite a bit, and this this, uh, this was even better. This was even more details. You're starting to see some benefits. AT&T has launched their uh, mesh network, and I think 10% of the, their users are using it. We, we, you and I talked about the SAIC, formerly Unisys, on the ITSM, and and the help desk, and about 70,000 users there. Microsoft and their mesh network is very close as well. What are you starting to see from, from Enterprise IT as a service, and what's it telling you about the future of, of this program? And Yeah, you, you've hit some of them. I mean, the other uh, Enterprise IT as a service, Cloud One, our Enterprise Cloud piece continues to be very successful. We have 40 large-scale applications in there. Uh, continue to leverage that for our platform services as well and Platform One. So Cloud One as an enterprise IT as a service initiative is going very well. Our chess, our cloud hosted enterprise services, our Office 365 work. By the end of this year, we will be completely done with the Air Force. We have a little over 600,000 users in that today. Continuing to move forward in mobile with our BYOD program, uh, accelerating that option. The SAC Unisys work is is probably the the farthest ahead with respect to performance. The 70,000 users turned on in pretty short order. Uh, was very successful, starts to unify the help desk, provide AI on the help desk trouble ticketing system, and starting to provide that that more repeatable and, and uh, stable endpoint that we've been looking for. Network as a service has had some challenges, but, but they are moving forward. I, I'm definitely seeing some good progress, specifically in the Microsoft side, on, on the work they're doing and starting to transform the way we look at, at the network. So, the, the bottom line is there's a, a couple challenges in there, like there isn't any big project, but I think there's some really big goodness around these big programs around cloud, mobile devices, end-user support, help desk. Uh, and right now, our, our biggest kind of focus is how do we start to scale those into large numbers of users from an acquisition perspective? So that's that's one of the big key next steps for, for whoever follows me. When we talk about that person as well, what's the biggest maybe lesson you learned from this enterprise IT as a service that you'd pass on? If you write a note that you leave in your you know, top desk drawer under EITAS, what, what are you going to say there? In the department and in the government, it's it's about partnering. So a great partnership with the Army, 
definitely, definitely enjoyed uh, working for Honorable DC as the DOD CIO. I think he brings a level of partnering that, that uh, not that others have been bad at, but I think he's brought it to a whole nother level. So the, the partnership to drive these unified enterprise pieces, because we are large and, and we do need to prop each other up and, and support each other, uh, whether that's in an acquisition or in uh, strategic comms or whatever the case may be. So strategic partnership, I think, is the biggest one, both inside the building and across the river, because these are large dollars. They're large programs, which typically, you know, 10 years ago, we'd say, here's another failed IT project. So the fact that we're delivering on projects that are affecting 500, 600, 700,000, I think you can't take it lightly that the teamwork uh, and the work with the acquisition community is is so foundational to that. The relationship with, in our case, with AFCyber, with General Hawk, with General Gunny Schmidt um, out of the PEO, uh, General Radigan at Lead Command, and General Wegeman at a- a- Air Combat Command, and then our team. We sometimes take that for granted when it's running well. I, that's probably the hardest thing for me to leave is is those sets of individuals that have really done phenomenal work to to bring this infrastructure together. That's Bill Marion, who just retired as the Air Force's Deputy CIO, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. More of their conversation after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbia. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with Bill Marion, who retired from the Air Force as the service's deputy CIO in May, he spoke with my colleague, Jason Miller. You mentioned the data, everything we, we hear these days, it's all about the data. And you mentioned the, the chief data officer that you guys hired. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about the, the impact that data is having on the Air Force. Talk a little bit about the fact that you guys are making better decisions today because of that data? Where, where do you see this going, this effort going in the future? It's certainly the, I would say, the newest service, if you will, that we've been been embarking on. I mean, you look at COVID right now, numerous activities going on there with respect to getting the data, getting it tied into readiness information, uh, operational information. I think, frankly, you know, we're moving out very well, but there's still a lot of maturity to go. And that just has to do with it, it being a, a relatively new focus area for us. Being able to aggregate the level of data that we're talking about is, <laughs> is mind-boggling, uh, frankly. Uh, I thought infrastructure at scale was hard. Data at scale is even harder. So I think we've progressed several steps. We know we've got multiple steps to go, but I, I think we are focused on the right infrastructure elements, the right uh, data elements, if you will, to bring that together. And you're seeing that play out in some use cases with COVID. You're seeing some use cases play out in, in the AI step with with the joint AI cell uh, General Shanahan's been running. But we, we all recognize we have a lot more work to do. Uh, but there is definitely some gains in, in analytics and, and data aggregation uh, that we're seeing play out in COVID as an example right now. Without a doubt, that idea of understanding the who and the what and the where and all those things that data brings you is, is making a big difference. Right. Well, we're, you kind of answered this question around advice to others or big lessons you've learned in the collaboration, the communication piece. Is there any other pieces and parts you'd offer to other CIOs or people who want to become CIOs? Any other advice you'd give them? Uh, the biggest one I, I use leaving is, is use the carrot versus the stick. Um, I, I think as CIOs, we, 
I've seen multiple CIOs come in and be unsuccessful just saying, well, if I write the policy, everybody will have to conform. I'm just a big believer in, in working through the carrot versus the stick mentality. I, I believe technology drives policy more than policy drives technology. So the best thing you can do as a CIO is start small, scale fast, and run like hell. So, you know, when you make a successful cloud project and you get another one and another one, people want to be a part of that uh, versus saying, hey, you need to comply with something that has no no basis of technical foundation. But that's probably the biggest one that I would say. We hear that time and again, it's the little wins. Get the little wins to show that you're a partner and not somebody who's going to stand in your way. The joke was always, right. don't be the CIO, no, but but be figure out how to get to yes and, and then how do you get there. And I think you're right. The, the, right. the carrot piece is, is so much more important than just being the person who's always putting up the obstacle. It takes a long time, do you think, to, to learn that or is that something that those digital people in the Air Force, those digital airmen should, should already know. You know what I mean? Like if you think about somebody who's a 25-year-old who wants to uh, <laughs> ascend to your position eventually, do they have those skills already just based on the way technology is so intricate to everything we do these days? Well, that, that goes into the other pieces, always be up to speed in the tech. I think if you're up to speed with the tech, you understand the realm of the possible and you can push the envelope and I think the biggest change in, in government or issue in government isn't the CIOs an, an agent for change. I think everybody expects that. It's a good CIO versus a bad one is how fast can you change? How fast can you do, you, do you know the technology enough? Do you know the drivers? Do you know the industry pressures to drive it at speed? It's not that people will argue with you about an iPhone, but they will argue about security. They'll argue about PII. They'll argue about, do you understand those nuances well enough to fight through them and deliver both the security and privacy and other things uh, at a speed that, that others may go, well, I don't quite understand that. So it takes them a long time to work through it. So I, I think a good CIO is, you know, understands the tech and can drive through it with, with a lot more speed and agility. Was there anything you did during your career to keep up with the tech? Because it's easy to get lost in the strategy. It's easy to get lost in the day-to-day and not go, oh, I didn't realize that that cloud thing is new. Yeah, I'd say this to a, to a lot of the younger airmen, and, I, and this isn't a political statement because I know Twitter can, but I, I have used Twitter for the last decade uh, to stay connected with industry partners, to understand the trends. We have a thing in the Air Force called the early bird, which is kind of your news every day when you wake up. Twitter is my early bird. I, I could peruse the latest trends, tech trends, market pressures, all that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, and then kind of alongside that is is making the connections with industry partners. Understand what's real, what's emerging. I mean, I, I kind of laugh when, when 4G, 5G came out because I'm like, well, I could rewind the 3G, 4G discussion and rewind the pre-3G discussion. And uh, if you're tracking those trends, the next one I, I don't think surprises you much as, as some. That's Bill Marion, who just retired as the Air Force's deputy CIO, talking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can hear more of their conversation on Federal News Network's Ask the CIO. Earlier, we spoke with Teresa Hull, the Assistant Inspector General for Audit, Acquisition, Contracting, and Sustainment at the DOD Inspector General's Office about how DOD can navigate the process of contracting during the coronavirus emergency. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, 
You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.